Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Nasu Malas. Dr. Malas is the Director of Pediatric Consultation Liaison Psychiatry and the Service Chief for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Hospital Services for Michigan Medicine. He completed training in pediatric medicine, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry, a triple board, and has also completed a master's in public health and a certificate program in neurodevelopmental disabilities. He provides clinical care primarily at the interface of pediatrics and child psychiatry within the hospital setting. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mollis. Good morning, Nasu. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. Happy New Year. And uh, yeah, I'm doing great. It's been a busy week, but doing well, feeling blessed. Well, thank you so much for making time. And we'll just hop right in. You're a kind of in a unique person in that you are both a child and adolescent psychiatrist and trained in pediatrics. So you're triple boarded because you also did adult psychiatry. And how do you think that that kind of specialized training has really shaped what you do. And I think you had mentioned to me when we talked before that you speak two languages. Can you talk about that? So, yes, you're absolutely right, Leah. I uh, pursued training in in pediatric medicine. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, as well as uh, general psychiatry, or, or what you mentioned, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry. I also have a background in public health too. I got a master's of public health from the University of Wisconsin. So I think that the gem, the gist of it is it gives me a much more holistic approach to have this background, um, understanding systems of care, understanding clinical care issues, both in pediatric medicine, so how the body functions, but then also how the mind functions uh, with my background in psychiatry. And a lot of adult psychiatry informs child psychiatry, but melding those backgrounds and experiences has allowed me to serve as an effective advocate for youth uh, in a variety of different clinical settings with a variety of different uh, clinical concerns. And understanding the pediatric system, the mental health system, the public health system, how they interface, some of the uh, values and um, Uh, resources that are allocated in those settings, but also some of the potential inefficiencies uh, is really helpful for me to really uh, provide a high quality service. And as you stated, it's also understanding the language. Uh, Pediatricians think and speak about clinical issues slightly differently than psychiatrists. It's It's a different perspective. It's a different lineage of training that people come to serving as clinicians, whether you're in pediatrics or psychiatry. And so I kind of serve as an ambassador to both fields. And when I'm with the pediatrician, I can not only understand what their concerns are and and really 
speak to them in a way that resonates for them, but, but translate some of that to our psychiatry colleagues and vice versa. And by doing that, I, I hope to really bring uh, two fields, two disciplines that are much more alike than different in many ways and, and really help build that dialogue, build that collaboration, build that integrated service delivery model that I think a lot of us nationally are moving towards. But by having that background and that skill set, I can effectively serve as that conduit to really marrying these two disciplines a little bit closer together. And I think you're absolutely right that our training is very different. I and I didn't really think that because we all we we take care of kids, but when I went to a, an American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry conference and was one of like three pediatricians there, I was so struck by like these guys think different about things than we do, and that was kind of an aha moment. So it was I, I think good for me to step into the other side, the other shoes, and just sort of see it from a different perspective, because I think sometimes in peds, we feel like we don't get enough psychiatry support. But I've also heard when talking to so many psychiatrists now that sometimes they're like, yeah, but we're isolated and we we don't get to be included either. So um, I think we all just need to join the party. I was going to ask about your specific role that you have as a consult liaison or CL. Um, and taking care of kids in the hospital and working alongside with pediatricians. What, what does that role look like and when should pediatricians ask for those CL services? Well, uh, Leah, my, my philosophy as a consultation liaison psychiatrist is to really facilitate getting the right type of care to youth and families in a timely way and really to help provide and, and, foster a really high level of comprehensive holistic care. And so with that philosophy, with that guiding principle, I really try to be open and welcoming to pediatric services or pediatricians that are looking to support patient care, whether it's around uh, behavioral concerns, emotional concerns, cognitive concerns or other kind of psychosocial difficulties and partner with other disciplines that also interface, whether it's our psychologists, our social workers, child life. Uh, a lot of our nurses have tremendous backgrounds in behavioral care and support. And, and really it, it takes a team effort. But first and foremost, it, it comes from a place of really uh, being part of that fabric, pediatric medicine, going to the meetings, showing up at our morning reports with our residents, being involved in residency education, uh, showing up at different division meetings, um, whether it's the hospice division or subspecialty practices, and really putting ourselves out there. Our documentation helps educate providers, nurses, staff. Uh, you know, I, I pride um, our service on really articulating our assessments and, and providing detailed management recommendations, because it's not only about delivering that care, but it's about educating uh, individuals why we're doing what we're doing and why, you know, certain medications or certain uh, behavioral therapies are, are selected. And then it's about just really making people feel welcome, not only patients and families, that's 
our, our primary responsibility is really to deliver that care to patients and families. But very close to that is also to make our uh, consultees really feel like we're accessible, that we provide timely service, and we address the issues that they're hoping uh, to have addressed, even though sometimes they don't have the language to articulate what they think is going on or what is a problem, knowing that we can understand what their needs are and be responsive to that. And so that's what I do. And, and really, even if I uh, am dealing with a very novel issue or situation, and we, we often do see that at Michigan Medicine where people have struggled and we are kind of the end all for their care, um, some really, really complicated issues. It's about sitting down, having those collaborative meetings, defining the antecedents to whatever pathology we're seeing, and really developing a comprehensive plan with everybody's input and really utilizing the principles that we know have worked in similar situations, but now we have to apply them slightly differently because we're dealing with a highly complex issue. And if we do that, and we do this pretty routinely on our service, uh, we tend to have really, really good outcomes. And our providers tend to consult us more because they can trust that we are going to deliver a timely, high-quality service, and we're going to partner with them and not necessarily kind of isolate ourselves from the rest of the pediatrics group. I'm guessing that your colleagues are probably super relieved to see you. It's not even our, our colleagues. I think, I mean, they, they are, I think, um, and I'm relieved to see them too. I mean, I, we have some fantastic pediatric providers. Uh, I think it's our nurses though. Our nurses are at the front line and, and oftentimes, you know, as physicians, we forget that a lot of that care delivery is happening at the bedside. And if you're a nurse managing, a, a pediatric nurse managing a complex behavioral issue, that's challenging because just as you said before, you know, in pediatric training, physicians oftentimes get limited mental health training, while nurses often also get limited mental health training. And so they're put in that position to interface with the family, to be the frontline communicator, to be delivering care. And so what I found, uh, interestingly, as I've kind of grown into this role, is that the nurses are tremendously relieved to see our service present. Um, we have fantastic social worker, a behavioral health nurse, a nurse practitioner. It's a well-rounded team. And so any member of our team that comes to the bedside, there's a sigh of relief from our nurses knowing that, you know, we're there to support them. We're there to model what, what needs to be done, to think collaboratively about what needs to be done. And then our pediatric colleagues are right there with us. Uh, and that's what's fantastic is it's not a situation where we come to the bedside and then everybody disappears. It's really a team approach and everybody's putting in what they think is, is the best way to solve issues, to support families. And I think, you know, we, we've created a culture now um, that really, really is, is team-based and thinking broadly about patient needs. So there's, there's lots of size of relief, I guess, because we're all kind of uh, supporting each other and, and we, we kind of come together as a team. There's going to be a lot of listeners that are going to be jealous about the services that are available at U of M and Ann Arbor because this is not available everywhere. I mean, probably big centers where child psychiatry is available. Do you see that there's ever going to be a place for telepsychiatry so that, you know, psychiatrists at big centers could support a smaller rural hospital? 
Yeah, and I, I think to, to my colleagues at, at a variety of other sites, um, we have a lot of things that we're working on at Michigan Medicine too. I think what, when you build out services and you deliver certain levels of care, there, there are other unique challenges. And so I, I think across the state and across the country, there is a mental health crisis among youth and we're all experiencing it in our unique ways, but uh, it, it certainly is a challenge. We are blessed to have some really great folks here at Michigan Medicine that can really think broadly and provide a variety of levels of, of service and care. But to your original question, Leah, telepsychiatry I think has a tremendous role and we have to be very mindful of what that role is. Um, the, the literature hasn't caught up with the rapid frenetic pace that telepsychiatry has expanded, particularly during the pandemic. And so we don't know, um, you know what, what the fidelity is for delivering certain psychotherapeutic services or certain psychiatric care is when you deliver it through a virtual model. So to give you an example, there are certain services like applied behavioral analysis for youth with autism that we're not sure kind of what aspects of that therapy can be delivered virtually versus what needs to really be provided in, in home. Uh, same thing with eating disorder care. Uh, a lot of eating disorder care is fairly intimate where you're supervising a child or adolescent through a meal and um, needing to coach families on how to support those youth. And, and some of that certainly uh, can be delivered effectively through virtual uh, methods, but the evidence I think needs to catch up. And that's, this is an area that needs a lot of research to really identify what works and what maybe needs to be done in person. But with that said, I think there's a huge opportunity that has kind of been opened uh, by the pandemic. Virtual psychiatric care was growing, but it's grown rapidly since the pandemic. And I do think there's an opportunity for youth and families in rural areas, in areas that have limited access to mental health services or even pediatric subspecialty services to be able to excuse me, to deliver some of those services virtually. I have worked and partnered with a program here called the Michigan Child Collaborative Care Program or MC3. And they kind of were pioneering some of this work before the pandemic. And uh, I've seen and witnessed firsthand as, as a provider of that service in the past that uh, it, it's tremendously beneficial uh, for families, for providers, uh, there are practice changes that occur over time just by interfacing with the child psychiatrist and innovations that can be developed through education and other means to really support primary care pediatricians and other, you know, uh, community-based uh, resources, whether it's school-based mental health providers or other kind of school-based or uh, community-based resources to provide that care locally in the community and not have to drive three, four hours to come to a major academic center to get that service. So lots of opportunity, but also lots of room for study. Right. I was talking to a, a geneticist yesterday who said, you know, I mean, they're really limited number of those folks and, you know, that now they're able to do teleservices for people you know, do those consultations all over the state here in Michigan. And um, to your point about MC3, the collaborative uh, project, I was fortunate enough to be involved in it from the get-go. And, you know, it, 
there are, and we did a podcast with Dr. Quigley about these, they call them CPAPs, that so for listeners that there are networks across the country um, and many states, I think there were like 30 some states have these um, systems. So it was a game changer for me. Uh, it totally changed my practice. It gave me more confidence. It gave me not necessarily an algorithm, but a place to start so mm-hmm. that I thought, you know, if I call MC3, they're going to ask me these questions. So I probably should ask those questions first. And these would be the typical recommendations in a situation like this. So I could start there. And it got to be now, if I call, it's because it's really a mess. And (laughs) I've tried lots of things that I think you guys would recommend first. So, you know, it's complicated. These kids are complicated. Well, I think, Leah, you know, hearkening back to one thing you said, you had mentioned kind of that our service was a sigh of relief. I think having services like MC3, these telepsychiatric services, um, especially services that you, you know, you've built a relationship with, that you trust, that you know uh, is going to provide a good service, uh, where you've seen the fruits of that service. I think for primary care pediatricians, there's that sigh of relief that it's just not me, that I have somebody that I can call, I have a behavioral health consultant in my community that I can run a referral by or, you know, ask a, you know, a a question about a a behavioral uh, therapy, but also to reach out to Joanna Quigley or Sheila Marcus, uh, these faculty at the University of Michigan that um, are able to provide fairly rapid uh, support for those questions. It gives you a sense that you're, you're not in isolation. And the worst thing, uh, my, my colleagues and psychiatrists can appreciate this because, um, you know, when we deal with a medical emergency in, on a psychiatric unit, that causes about the same amount of distress. And it's that sense of, I don't know how to manage this. I don't know how to address this. And so once you go through that process, one, two, three, four, you know, a hundred times, you start to learn the steps. You start to learn the questions to ask, the approaches to take, you can anticipate what the child psychiatrist is going to ask you. And like you said, you, you can get to a point where after some time of interfacing in these uh, virtual services that you can actually uh, really manage a lot of this independently and really call only for those really challenging cases. That was entirely my experience. I liken it to um, kind of holding my hand, having a sounding board, a friend. I mean, I would do it with a cardiac case, you know, like I would call one of my colleagues and say, hey, I've got this kid with, you know, this murmur or doing blah, blah, blah. Do you want to see him? What do you think I should do? Do you want me to do an echo for, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same thing. I just don't for some reason, we just haven't had that tradition of being able to call our psychiatric colleagues. So I think that's been a really nice change that's occurred. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask a little bit about what you think the pandemic has done to kids and what you're seeing on the floors. Is it different? That's a great question. I think that's uh, an area that a lot of us are looking into right now. Uh, I'm currently involved with some of my colleagues 
on a couple studies, one study looking at consultation service practice within the hospital and how that's evolved uh, through the early phases of the pandemic. And then I've also been working with uh, some colleagues nationally around looking at how um, emergency services, uh, both emergency psychiatric services, but also traditional uh, emergency pediatric services have been affected by the pandemic and how youth have presented. What we're seeing generally, and I think, you know, our understanding is still evolving, but generally what we're seeing is that youth who, well, youth in general, I think families in general are, are under tremendous stress. I think we all can appreciate that because as, as human beings uh, around the world, we've all had to change our routines. We've been affected uh, socioeconomically. We've been disconnected. And one of my uh, colleagues through the American Association of Emergency Psychiatry used a very wonderful analogy that kids are usually the shortest leg of a table. So when you lift the table, kind of all the stress and difficulty kind of funnels down to the child. And if you can imagine children who are experiencing uh, parents who may be healthcare workers or um, a family member who's lost a job, somebody who's gotten ill, losing the social connectedness at school, there's been a lot of distress placed on kids. And so what we've seen is a rise in uh, mental health need among youth uh, across many domains. Talking to colleagues nationally, it looks like our youth with eating disorders um, have been disproportionately affected. We've seen anecdotally increased suicidal ideation and behavior among youth, especially younger youth than we would typically see. And also our kids with autism and developmental delay have been affected as well. And part of that also is related to the other part of the equation, which is uh, the access to services. Because of the pandemic, services that traditionally would provide in-house service or in-person service have reduced or even stopped those services. So thinking about partial hospitalization programs, um, wraparound services, in-home ABA services, uh, even you know traditional psychotherapy and psychiatric care have been limited on top of uh, you know, a lot of pediatric subspecialty services and some primary care services go into virtual. And so uh, we've seen that all kind of filter into a lot of youth coming in with more acute uh, mental health concerns. And because of some of these bottlenecks, I don't know what other health systems are experiencing in this in the state, but I know nationally, there has been an uptick in youth with mental health crises accessing medical emergency rooms and medical floors for their care. And then on the back end of that, when you're looking at disposition planning, those disposition options have dramatically decreased. And so all of that has put a, a tremendous pressure on our health systems. Our health systems have been responsive. We've been looking at innovative ways to, to support that, including virtual uh, psychiatric services. But uh, I would say that there has been some significant impact on youth mental health during the pandemic. It's almost like that there is a problem on the front end. So no place to go except the ER perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then on the back end, no place to go when you get discharged because all those support services are 
are not there like they were usually. And, and, you know, we certainly in the primary care setting then see those kids because we're often the front line, like mm-hmm. help and, and they don't have the schools to have like a pressure let off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody's kind of in a situation where the typical safety nets are, have big holes. Correct. And I, I think we've, we've learned a lot of things uh, through the pandemic. I, I will say my colleagues that work in the ambulatory setting have done some tremendously innovative, highly, highly rapid kind of turnaround changes to facilitate access. But we had an access issue even before the pandemic. So it's just kind of exacerbated a, an existing issue. Uh, but you're right, too. I think what we didn't realize is how protective the school environment was around mental health teachers and counselors and principals. You know, they, they sometimes pick up on mental health issues in youth or other problematic psychosocial issues, um, as well as trauma and abuse. And so we don't see that as much because with, with virtual care, even hybrid models, there's there's less eyes on. And then the social disconnectedness, the lack of routine. Uh, in, in one of our studies, we looked at um, kids' perceptions during the pandemic and how they influence mental health. And about three, you know, three quarters of the kids we, we surveyed said they felt bored. You know, they don't have access to fa- other family. They don't have access to friends. You know, the school days are sometimes shortened. And so um, the issues around developing kind of a, a healthy routine and being involved in extracurriculars and really being involved in a variety of activities that really enrich and, and help a, a child's identity uh, form and, and have that sense of connectedness to a community, to a family, to friends, uh, they've kind of dissolved uh, or, or been reduced in some way. And it has a tremendous impact on kids. And so uh, we've been just counseling families, um, our primary care colleagues to ask those questions, to check in, to try to you know, supplement uh, those routines to try to find other ways to keep kids connected and being mindful and aware that kids are struggling with this pandemic for a variety of reasons and that we need to be more involved and, and more aware of that. Lots of idle time, it sounds like. I apologize. I feel like I'm getting some feedback here. If there is some for listeners, sorry about that. You know, you're talking about these services and, you know, that there was lack of access before and now it's really, I mean, it's a huge problem. Is there some place to be advocating for, you know, paying for these things? How how do we make, if this is essential to keeping our kids well, what do we do as adults to make sure that that happens? Well, you know, I think it's about reaching out, um, reaching out to your local community resources, um, whether it's, um, you know, the the community pediatrician or other resources in the community, just to kind of see what's available locally that you can support. But then thinking kind of more broadly, you know, reaching out to your um, your representatives and contacting them, being mindful of certain policies that are being voted on or reviewed and, you know, whether or not public opinion is, is being um, shared around those uh, to kind of weigh in, uh, to reach out to advocacy groups, um, 
that uh, provide support around mental health uh, issues and just trying to do your piece in that regard and, and putting your voice out because the more voices we have, the more uh, people who are present, the more that our decision makers will respond. Uh, and then, you know, in our own spheres of direct influence, you know, being uh, mindful of how our kids are doing, how our families are doing, checking in, uh, as stressful and as hectic as things can be, you know, trying to build in some time where you can do some uh, constructive family activity or uh, provide um, some, you know, special time to do something that's fun, that that's feasible in a socially distanced world. So there's a lot of ways people can participate, but it actually just starts off with a willingness to do it and being aware that this is an issue. And once, once you kind of have that, and if you're motivated enough, uh, it's surprising how a few phone calls, a letter, um, even reaching out to, you know, the folks in the media when they put out an article about a mental health issue and saying, hey, you know, this has affected me and thank you for writing about this issue that's really important. Because the more we can spotlight and highlight um, the importance of mental health for our youth, the more that things will change uh, to really support patients and families. I think that those are really important parts. And we have these national organizations, like I usually give a huge shout out every time on a podcast to the American Academy of Pediatrics and also the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry or ACAP. And that, you know, these organizations amplify our voices and getting involved in your local chapters in your states is, is important. I mean, it's amazing how, and, and I, in talking to people on this podcast over and over and over again, people have said, you know, I was one person and I started something and now it's a hugely different so that one person can make a difference. And I, um, one of my guests said, and I was so struck by it was pick the thing that makes you mad. If you feel like this is wrong and then figure out how to, you know, make it your mission, your passion to make it right. And so I think, especially if we can do it with you know, it's not just me, but now it's me and you and your friends and my friends. And pretty soon, you know, it's a tidal wave. Yeah. And I I think you're absolutely right. I think you start off with kind of knowing what you're passionate about. And then there's people, whether it's at, you know, these professional organizations and uh, both the American Academy of Pediatrics, the uh, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. There, there's also, I mean, there's a lot of other great organizations too. The American, there's just so many great groups that are doing this work that once you identify that passion, reaching out to your known community contacts to kind of think about how can I be helpful? But then there's these organizations that actually have very well-developed pathways. So through the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, I routinely will get emails about different legislation that's happening nationally or uh, even in, in my state uh, to really generate both discourse, but also to get me to potentially think about, um, you know, doing something meaningful to address a particular issue. And so it's not necessarily about knowing what to do. It's about knowing you want to do something and what, what you want to do. And then there's lots of people who can help you. Agreed. Um, 
in talking about this, and I think particularly you and I were talking a couple of days ago and you were on service and it was wild from from the conversation we had. And I was just wondering on a personal level, how you and your colleagues kind of support each other and, and what do you do to prevent burnout? Because this work is exhausting. I mean, I am, there's been so much that's been overshadowed by what happened at the Capitol with all the mayhem. Mm -hmm. And then on the, the flip side story, of course, is what's going on in California and, you know, these frontline people, it's just desperate. And Mm -hmm. how do we stay afloat? Yeah. You know, I I think, you know, whether it's a, it's a parent who's um, trying to figure out virtual schooling and, and managing their career somebody who has a loved one in the hospital, somebody who's a frontline worker. I mean, it's, it's really been hard because there, you know, we, we had an issue with, with wellness and, and our health system here has done a fantastic job of, of spotlighting wellness. We actually have an office of counseling and workplace resiliency at our, at our health system. That's how important it is at the university of Michigan. And now that's just been exacerbated, unfortunately, by this pandemic. So, you know, one, I mean, there's, there's formal resources. Uh, a lot of um, workplaces have resources. Um, they have somebody you can reach out to um, within your human resources. Um, some places have more robust supports. But I think a lot of it is how you frame and how you create a culture in your work environment and whatever environments you interface with. So in our uh, hospital-based services, we've done some really nice things. We've tried to spotlight some of the services. So our inpatient psychiatry unit, it's a unit that has patients that, you know, sometimes need to, you know, do some more in-person activity. Um, they're, they're folks that come into the hospital who are, are more ill. And th- there has been a lot of innovation to support infection control measures and socially distanced care, because that's not how inpatient psychiatry was originally designed, was to be socially distanced, right? So uh, because of that, our health system recognized that work, and and they were selected as a finalist for a a prestigious kind of um, award that highlights uh, really high-quality care. So those types of things, I think, can, can help the culture. I think having check-ins. Um, our health system does a lot of check-ins with frontline workers and um, we do process groups. We try to really uh, make people feel like they have an outlet, that there are people who, who are present, who want to help, who want to support folks. Really, uh, you know, sending out messages and education and, and reminders around wellness highlighting that um, and really creating a presence for people so that they feel like, gosh, people do care. Uh, people are aware of this. Uh, most people understand that there's just uncontrollable events that are occurring, but people want to know that people care, that there there's help around the corner and that, you know, generally the people that they work with are there, they have their back, that they are willing to help them. And so it just, as much as we can within our spheres of influence, we've really been trying to instill that culture. And then lastly, I'm not 
good at this myself, but modeling, I think, uh, good work-life balance. Um, it's something I'm working on personally, but, you know, as much as we can model for each other, you know, creating some limits and boundaries to what we do so that we can really generate that good work-life balance. And if enough of us do that, especially in leadership roles, uh, really demonstrate that and show our colleagues kind of that we are committed to that, it will change the culture and it will make the work environment a lot more supportive of wellness. Um, and yeah, we, we found that, that that's been the case uh, with our hospital-based services. Yeah, I think part of it is just asking each other, how, how are you really, you know, mm-hmm. um, or noticing a distressed colleague. And I think physicians in particular were trained to um, be tough. You know, I got this, you know, we trade war stories about, you know, I haven't slept in 24 hours, like that's a good thing, you know, and we have a, a SISM or critical incident stress management team at our hospital system that has been incredibly effective. And we just go and sit down with teams especially when there's been a, a bad outcome, uh, you know, an unexpected death, particularly mm-hmm. deaths in children mm-hmm. and, and help the team's process. And a lot of it is just tell me what, what were you thinking about? What, what sticks in your head? What can't you get rid of? And let's talk about what can you do that's going to make you feel better. A lot of people say I go home and hug my kids, but, you know, to in, you know, those simple things. And I, we brought this up many times, you know, sleep, movement, getting outside, even if you can go out just to look up at the sky and know that, you know, kind of grounding yourself. And I think it's more than meditation, but I, I know for most of us, because we're social beings being connected to one another to say, you know, I really care about you. Are you all right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, do you need to take a minute? Um, You know, those just personal, you know, we're people too. And I think we forget that sometimes that we're supposed to be tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you completely. You know, it's about, um, I think for us as individuals to be willing to be self-respect, uh, reflective and build that in to our, our day. I think going through the motions, sometimes we forget kind of where that balance is, what's important, um, and get caught up in the distress of the moment and not seeing the bigger picture. And it's hard. It's, it's easy to say, I think it's really hard to practice because I've been there and it's very challenging, but then also creating a culture where it feels okay to say I'm struggling or for somebody to say, Hey, you look, you look like you're having a tough day. Uh, picking each other up. Um, one of the things we we talk about on our consult service is that we have a certain amount of work. Some days it's a lot, some days it's a little bit less, but we're all there to get the work done and to do it the right way. And whether the attending physician is kind of doing, you know, some, some um, phone calls or other tasks to kind of facilitate work or Whatever, whatever's happening, we, we don't look at it as a as hierarchy as much as kind of, you know, it's a team that's delivering that care. And if you create that team culture that we're all here to support each other and provide good care, I really do think people will be responsive. And um, just that that overhanging stress and dread and, and all that um, frustration that people may be experiencing, if they know that other people are there that care and that um, 
are there to support them. Generally, I think, uh, you know, it may not alleviate everything, but it, it does help considerably. Um, and then knowing, I think the other thing, um, you mentioned your schism team and, and we have similar teams here. We actually, we, we run a debriefing curriculum for leaders across the um, health system to help them debrief with their units. Um, but building in some debriefing time naturally, you know, like if you run a primary care practice, maybe on Tuesday mornings, you spend 20 minutes just debriefing and saying, how are people doing? You know, we're there are any events this week that were challenging and kind of having a process for that. Uh, but building these things into your routine can be really helpful because sometimes we do forget or we um, don't prioritize these things and then we kind of get lost in the shuffle. I, I like that. I like that. The other thing I think is for those of us that might have other mental health. I mean, I certainly, I'm a a person with anxiety and, and sometimes that gets the best of me is knowing that it's okay for us to seek therapy. um, And that there are, you know, most workplaces have employee programs. I think the other though is peers, you know, finding those supports within your own, Uh, often physicians won't talk to therapists initially, but if I said, hey, Nasu, gosh, it really sounds like you're having a hard time. You know, I've seen this therapist. They might help you too. Would You know, here's their name, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, you know, that it and modeling that for a residence that, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's so much stigma around mental health that we don't talk about our own stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it's somehow embarrassing that, yeah. you know, oh, I thought you had it all together. Well, you know, guess what? <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and um, you know, just talking about trainees, um, we actually, in, in our pediatrics residency program, we have, uh, I think it's every other month now, these process groups where we, they're open-ended and the residents can join. And we just sit and talk about challenging issues and really create a, create a safe and secure environment for the residents to process, you know, the, the emotional and cognitive aspects of going through pediatric training. Uh, and I think it's really helped over the years create a environment where people are open to talking about some of the really human experiences we have in providing pediatric care. I mean, this is a really emotionally charged um task we have as, as healers, as clinicians, and recognizing that it's not just about, you know, talking about, um, you know, algorithms for community-acquired pneumonia or how to treat a, a UTI and what's the new kind of guideline on that. It's also about, you know, how did it feel when that mother learned about that new diagnosis of cancer and you had to be with that mother or father in processing that um, for their child. And, you know, how did it feel that uh, we made an error in this situation and how could we do better? Uh, Having those conversations, those are sometimes the silent um, issues in in residency training, I think creates a series of trainees that then go on as faculty who then value that piece. And we've had several of our early faculty in pediatrics really take a strong interest in wellness. And I think part of that may be, you know, just really instilling that early on in their training that this is important to you being a good pediatrician, a good psychiatrist, that you you have an opportunity to kind of process these things. Well, we 
take care of our most vulnerable population children. And it, with that comes an enormous responsibility to get it right. And I mean, there've been many times when I have come home feeling sick to my stomach that did I miss something? I mean, if somebody says we just had a kid diagnosed with leukemia, oftentimes the first response is, oh my God, have I seen them? And did I miss it? That's a huge fear. I would have to say, honestly, with my partners, we frequently will say, oh my God, this mom just got so mad at me. You know, did I do the right thing? Should, you know, so we, we frequently kind of process it on the fly. I don't think we really think about it as doing it formally, but yeah. being able to just talk about it. I mean, that's the beauty of having partners. And, you know, I know that if something came up in my family, regardless of what it was, if I needed to leave, my partners would have my back in an instant. They'd be like, go, Leah, just go take care of what you need to do. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, has been, and it's not something that I've used a lot, but man, there were some times where I was just like, I mean, I literally, I got to go now. Yeah. Um, and people picked up the pieces for me. Yeah. And, 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 and it comes from a place, I think a lot of us that whether it's like psychiatry or pediatrics, a lot of us came into these fields really with a desire to help others and to give as much as we can to others who are vulnerable. And I, I think when when we're in those situations, whether it's a personal circumstance that we're struggling with and we may perceive, well, I, I don't want to burden others. Let me just kind of ride this out or let me not talk about it. You know, it, again, it comes back to that value and maybe that value um, resulting in you maybe doing something that uh, you wouldn't expect of a colleague, you know, that um, you, you kind of keep that in or, or vice versa, that desire for reassurance that you did the right thing, that, you know, you supported the family the right way. And I, the core value that a lot of us share is wanting to help others and wanting to see others do well. And, and, and when we don't see that happen, or maybe there's a challenge, it really hits us pretty hard. And I think if we recognize that that is coming from a place of a deep value we have, it helps us, I think, reflect a little bit more effectively on it. It also helps us understand that seeking help from a colleague or an opinion or can be really reassuring and keeping that value intact for ourselves, but also taking care of ourselves in the way that we best need at that time. Uh, and I think by doing that and, and, and being aware of that deeply seated value that we all have, I think it just helps us not be so down on ourselves or, or keep things bottled up that really need to be shared with um, certain people in our group. Right. We're supposed to be the, the smartest, the best, the most compassionate, you know, and God forbid that it doesn't go. And, and I think, too, there are some of us that might struggle with really serious things like substance mm -hmm. use and mm -hmm. or serious mental illness. Um, you know, suicide risk in physicians is really high and that we have to be aware of it's okay to ask somebody, are you having a hard time? I'm concerned about you. Those are hard conversations to have, or, you know, you seem super angry. I mean, I've certainly, as I was kind of winding up my practice and, you know, having interactions, saying goodbye to patients, I, I was frequently pretty teary eyed. My, my staff would be like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> but <laughs> it was, that was tough. That was yeah. tough. It, you know, the, the, the work we do, uh, whether it's in psychiatry or pediatrics, it's, it's a deeply emotional experience. And uh, we have a privilege, I think, of working with patients and families in a very intimate way. 
uh, especially in primary care. I think those longitudinal relationships you build and seeing people grow and develop, um, being the front line for a lot of different things can be a tremendously, create a lot of tremendous emotion and, and some deep experiences. And I think just being cognizant of that and being cognizant that that's okay, that's it's just part of the practice. And, you know, sometimes it affects us in different ways. And sometimes we need to get help for that, especially like you alluded to when mental illness kind of sets in um, or substance use that we, we need to be willing to, you know, talk to our colleagues in a professional way about it, but also as people who may be experiencing that uh, being open to, you know, reaching out to the appropriate people early, because when these things fester, they can be really, really problematic and people can suffer. And so I agree with you completely, Leah. I think uh, it is a, it's a very, especially now during the pandemic, it's been particularly challenging emotionally, but as long as we support each other and, and get, get the right help and resources, um, uh, we can do the best by, by each other. So to wrap up my questions for you, my last, and maybe you've already answered it throughout this conversation. And, oh, I do want to give a shout out that um, in the month of February, I'm going to be doing a whole segment um, on wellness uh, with a physician from pediatrics, um, Dr. Middlemist, um, who's on the wellness advisory group with the AAP. So people can look forward to that. But if you were going to go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? This is a pretty easy one for me, but I think one that's been a challenge to put in practice and uh, something that I've received feedback on uh, throughout my career, and I'm trying to adopt more and more, but it, it's the idea that you know being an effective clinician is really, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint, and enjoying the process and not trying to run to some type of place um, that, it, you know, the work is always going to be there, the, you know, challenges will always be there, the opportunities will be there, and being able to be mindful of all the things that are important to myself uh, as I go through the process. And I think as a, as a younger me, uh, there was uh, a lot of, I think, excitement to build and achieve and advance different um, aspects of my career. Uh, And it's been great, uh, no doubt. I mean, I've enjoyed every single step of the way, but recognizing that um, it is that marathon and that uh, just pacing yourself uh, can allow you to achieve a lot and do well and feel fulfilled, but also kind of meet all those different aspects of your life that are important to you. And that led you to the career, but also that make you who you are. Uh, and so I, I think uh, my, my younger me was a little bit uh, energetic and, and the older me is, is a little bit wiser now and would, would suggest that, you know, really kind of trying to pace yourself through your career and, and being mindful of all the blessings you have and, and, and all the important things in your life. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And I hope that you find some time to take care of yourself and enjoy those little things, your children, your friends, your family, um, getting dressed, you know, <laughs> sleeping, um, eating regularly, looking at the sky, taking deep breaths. I, you know, again, it's more about meditating, but there's something to be said for, you know, taking five deep belly breaths. I mean, I think we can all benefit from that. So, um, 
my best to you. And, you know, I hope that you are able to continue to provide the kind of compassionate care that you want to, um, to your patients, but uh, also to yourself, because like parenting, we're, we're best when we take care of ourselves. Thanks, Leah. And I, you know, it's been a tremendous privilege to be a part of this podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you to all the listeners. And um, hopefully 2021 is, is, a, is a good year. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Nasu Malas for spending time with us today. Boy, would you not be relieved to have him and his team show up on your floor when you have some of those really difficult cases? This must provide so much comfort and support to pediatricians, hospitalists, and as he mentioned, nursing staff who spend so much time at the bedside with kids who often have very complex cases and concerns. Dr. Mollis talked about the role of a consult liaison. This is a psychiatrist who provides consultation services in the hospital, and he likes to think of this as a holistic system of care. The Child and Adolescent Consult Liaison, or CL, really can facilitate what he described as right care, foster comprehensive care, and it offers an opportunity to pediatricians both to support them and to hear their viewpoints. He has kind of a unique perspective being a triple-boarded child psychiatrist in that he did train in pediatrics and speaks both languages. He brings to the table a psychosocial lens, both from the pediatric perspective and from the psychiatry perspective. One of the things that he has seen during the COVID crisis has been a loss of services. It's caused a lot of issues, particularly with those children who have complex psychiatric concerns, such as, you know, complex bipolar disorder, uh, aggressive disorders, and children on the autism spectrum who may often have very comprehensive wraparound services, ABA. And he even mentioned that the partial programs are not available. So there's no place for kids to go on the front end, and so they show up in emergency rooms. And then on the back end, at the time of discharge from hospitals, there's no place for them to go. And so sometimes they sit in the hospitals for a long time. He did mention that there has been an increase in hospitalizations for eating disorders with more and more severe cases, and that this seems to be unique to the pandemic and has been reported across the country. There has been such a demand on physicians and pediatricians to care for these kids with really challenging needs. And so fostering physician and staff wellness in the workplace is really helpful to try and maintain resilience. One of the great suggestions with a, was a debrief process team where he actually sits down with residents and anyone who else who wants to join and to just talk about these cases and how they feel. It's important that we take care of ourselves and there will be a whole upcoming podcast on physician wellness that I'm looking forward to bringing to you. His takeaway for himself and trainees is that medicine is a marathon, not a sprint. That, you know, there isn't really a quick fix and that oftentimes we have to sit with families through the course of the time that we care for them and that many of the conditions are persistent and chronic. So stay in the game.
Thank you so much for your time today. I know you all are very busy. Things are really challenging in the world today, and we need to take time for ourselves to reflect, maybe to step outside, take a deep breath, and just look at the sky. We need to be grateful for our families and our colleagues and our patients. There's nothing better than a kid making you laugh, right? So as always, take care of yourself. And again, I hope you're in line for the vaccine and that we can get the rest of our country vaccinated quickly. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.